Hello there, I'm Patrick Strode, trusted authority in executive and transactional liability and founder of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Now a proud member of the Liberty Company Insurance Broker Network. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Bakari Akil, founder of Graves Hall Capital. Based in New York, Graves Hall seeks to buy and run businesses where owners and founders are seeking an exit. And we recently had an article from Bloomberg about search funders. There's been information about other types of buyers, such as independent sponsors. So I thought it'd be great and ideal to have Bakari, who is out there in the market right now, come and join us. Bakari, great to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Patrick. Now, before we get into uh, Graves Hall, let's talk about you. Okay, what brought you to this point in your career? Sure. So uh, I am the founder of Graves Hall Capital. Um, Graves Hall is, uh, is effectively an independent sponsor. We um, uh, bought companies, uh, done a couple of deals through um, Graves Hall. Uh, most recently, I bought a burlap bag manufacturing company uh, based in New Jersey in partnership with a private equity firm. Before that, I bought an educational technology company in partnership with a family office. Um, and so, so far, I've been uh, doing deals uh, or, you know, completing acquisitions. So I completed acquisition with the family office. And so that's been my process has just been out in the market finding companies. Um, before that uh, or throughout that, I've been uh, also teaching. So um, at Cornell, I'm uh, the, uh, a visiting lecturer there where I teach the MBA candidates there how to buy companies. Uh, and so I've just been doing this work of um, acquiring and uh, and helping others um, along this process as well. Um, and so I've been at it since around 2016, which is where I learned about this uh, this whole space. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's been thrilling and difficult and challenging, but um, luckily I've uh, done some good deals. Well, now, when we think about your organization, you didn't call it Bakari Capital. Where'd you come up with Graves Hall? Yeah, so uh, so I went to a school called Morehouse in Atlanta, and uh, anyone who knows about Morehouse knows that there are some really beautiful pieces of architecture there, um, and probably the most beautiful and most prestigious building on the campus is Graves Hall, which is the freshman dorm that I lived in when I was on campus, and so I named my firm after that uh, very majestic building. Well, that's good. And also just there's a great backstory for getting insight into, you know, the personality of a firm. Let's talk about this because this has been a trend that's been out there now of instead of people looking for a job or other opportunities, okay, and they're not going to be in the house flipping industry, but they want to go ahead and do something in, in the economy. Hence, we've got these people now that are looking to instead of get, you know, apply for a job, they're buying companies. Talk about this phenomenon. Tell us your approach. Why did you start with this and what are you trying to get out of this? Sure. So uh, for me, I, I felt very similarly, and I, I appreciate that you referenced uh, the house flipping aspect of it because there, when I first was looking into entrepreneurship, I was looking for how can I build wealth for myself um, where, I, where I wasn't focused on just a job. And uh, this is back in 2016 as I was trying to learn about personal finance, wealth building, et cetera. Um, at that time, I was like 25. 
Um, I had like a regular sales job for a technology company, but um, hadn't yet done anything entrepreneurial in my life. And so, but I didn't have like a really good startup idea. But, and then also when I would look into house flipping and real estate type of stuff, first it demanded a lot of upfront capital to even get to, to even do a deal. Um, but second, um, besides the, the, the upfront capital, you also needed, um, you also needed some education. And a lot of the education that was available for people who were interested in real estate was done by people who, in my opinion, seemed a little shisty, like mm -hmm. people who could, uh, you know, end up taking your money, you know, pay, charge you $30,000 for a course. You'll learn a little bit about, you know, real estate and, uh, uh, but not enough to actually like get started. And just like by luck, I came across this concept of buying a company uh, and to find out that um, separate, you know, sort of different than house flipping, unless you're buying actively um, managed properties that uh, already have tenants inside of them, you can use the revenue and the EBITDA of the company to buy it using leverage from the bank and a little bit of investor capital if you can secure that. And to me, that was just like of phenomenal idea. I had never even considered the idea of buying a company. And so started looking for information about how to uh, to get the, get the get that done and came across um, a class that was being taught at Columbia Business School by uh, Tim Bobart, who's the founder of Search Fund Accelerator. I came across that course and, he's, and I found out that he was teaching his class at Columbia Business School. At the time, I lived in Harlem and uh, anyone knows Columbia is in Harlem. And so mm. I just went to Columbia Business School and sat in the class <laughs> since I was in town. And uh, that's how I was initially introduced to this world. Um, and since then, I believe that, and I still believe that it's the single greatest wealth building opportunity that's available to uh, the people and uh, and particularly people who are in my circumstance. And so uh, I advocate it. I, uh, I show up on podcasts. I teach I, teach courses, um, and most importantly, I execute on deals myself. And so, uh, so yeah, that's me. So now, you know, this is great for you, for the buyer to go look for some gem that literally pays for itself. What, is it, what does the seller get out of this? Well, you know, it's funny enough, I, I remember uh, years ago, I was talking to, uh, to an attorney, and we were having a conversation about um, what are some ways to entice a seller to want to do a deal with you and you know there was people who were talking about taking them to nice dinners and taking them to uh, some other perk or you know all these other things but ultimately it was clear that this is a transaction what the seller wants is the most amount of money for their asset, right? like, like, like erasing all the other minutia, you know, yes, you should show up in a suit if you can, but if the guy doesn't show up in a suit and he has a lower offer than the guy who does, who did show, this is not going to be that material. <laughs> he took me to a Yankee game. That's great. The other guy gave me a hundred thousand dollars more or a million dollars more than the other guy. I don't care about the Yankee game. I care about the money. And so, um, so the answer for that question is, you know, money. Um, the second thing I think that sellers are looking for are people who actually care about their company. Like, like I think, you know, particularly founders who and family-owned businesses, these are not just assets. These are like children. Like these are like yeah. things that they've worked and forged for sometimes generations, like the, the company, the Burlap company I bought was founded in 1946. 
Now, that company is older than some people's grandfathers, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it's a it's a an asset that matters to the people who who own it. And so I think demonstrating that you're going to be a good steward of the business going forward, not just going to collapse it once it's once it's uh, purchased. Um, you're not planning to do major changes to the company. Like that's one of the things that I always try to emphasize when I'm working on a transaction is my goal when I come in to take over the company is to run it very similarly to how it was ran before um, and not make major changes. I want the owner to feel like their company is in good hands. And so one, pay them a, an amount of money that is appropriate for the business, um, hire them the next guy <laughs> and uh, take care of the business. So you've got uh, a sizable good value return. There's continuity because, I mean, it is their literal creation where, you know, there was nothing there. They came along, put in, a, you know, blood, sweat and tears and capital, and they created something from nothing. And you were able to go put a, a reasonable value on it and go forward with it. I, th- I think it's great. I, I've spoken to a number of other uh, sell-side representatives, and it is amazing it. If there aren't people like you, Bakari, out there to buy, a lot of these owners and founders, if they don't have uh, family members or staff to turn their company over to, they end up just turning off the lights and closing the door and and, and walking away. So mm-hmm. you're providing, yeah. a de- you're filling a definite need out there, which is excellent. Now, give us a profile real quick. What types of companies are you looking for? I mean, you're clearly not working in the burlap bag right company right now. So you are buying and and maybe issues come up where somebody else has management. So you don't have to be there every day. Um, but tell me, you know, what's your ideal target? What are you looking for so that our audience members are aware of this? Sure. So, um, so I have three basic criteria that I stick to. The first is that the company should be hundred percent for sale. And that's mostly to try to avoid situations where, um, a partner is trying to exit and they need a new partner to, to jump in and clear out the old, clear out their ownership stake. But now I'm stuck with the new partner. Um, the second is that it generates somewhere in the area of $10 million in revenue. Um, and that's mostly to avoid businesses that are like pizza shops and uh, salons, you know, very small businesses that might generate something like four hundred or $500,000 a year uh, on, in revenue if they're very um, successful, but are not usually going to jump much higher than that. And uh, and so, but also I'm trying to avoid somebody bringing me a company the size of Coca-Cola. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to complete that transaction. Yeah. But within like 10, 10, 20, 30 million dollars in revenue, you know, that's the size that um, feels um, doable by me. And then lastly, the, the business needs to generate at least a million dollars um, in profit and have been profitable for the last three years. And uh, for me, those are two hedges. The first is that if it's a million dollars in profit, that means that you know it's gotten to a level that um, they've been able to meet a, that. That's a very high benchmark. Most businesses that are founded never hit that benchmark period, and so to hit that benchmark is really very valuable. And then second, to have done it consistently over the last three years means that it's not a fluke. It's you know yeah. this is a sustainable uh, profit margin that uh, that I can rely on for the future. Um, because ultimately I'm going to be using leverage as part of my purchase. And so I'm going to be using that, um, that cash flow to, to, to execute. Now, you mentioned earlier that you had partnered with a private equity firm and then you had a family office on another side. Okay. Let's talk about those relationships because I think what happens is 
you're targeting these desirable, albeit small targets that, you know, there's not a lot of public information about. And so, you know, bigger players out there, the private equity and some strategics, they don't know where to look for these. And here you are coming up saying, hey, I've got a perfect target for you. Why don't you partner with me or talk about how you were structuring your arrangements to make these make these acquisitions? Yeah, I mean, what you said is exactly right. Like the the skill set that I bring um, that private equity firms are sometimes are not uh, as capable at. And if they are capable at, they can't see every single deal in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and the same with family offices that sometimes will not have like a business development department inside of the firm um, where there's somebody who's just, like actively so- sourcing deals. Um, they're a capital provider, but not necessarily doing it up. The other piece, that's really where the independent sponsor and the search fund guys really is uh, maximizes the, the opportunity. Because if we can identify a good company and uh, and negotiate a price that is fair for uh, for the seller, but also creates a space where we can actually make some money um, once we purchase it, that's an uh, enormously valuable skill to people who are looking to um, deploy capital. Um, private equity firms have uh, a specific set period of time that they need to deploy capital in. And so uh, finding good deals is their um, top line. And so to have that means that ultimately the private equity firm just needs to diligence me and diligence the company. And once those two things are done, it's usually, uh, it's usually pretty good. Um, so those, those, those are the things that I would say are, are the value um, that I'm providing. And it's the, the reason why I'm able to, uh, to structure deals with uh, and, and execute deals with these larger players. Is it fair to say that, Business development for the private equity is probably the most thankless and difficult job, and that they're eager to outsource that to somebody else so they don't have to have their staff making cold calls. So I think there's definitely an element to that, but private equity mm-hmm. is changing. There are some, there are departments inside of some private equity firms um, that are dedicated exclusively to um, to deal flow and pipeline management. Um, that those apartments are usually called the business development department. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so there's, there's definitely some of that. The partners of firms oftentimes are in, engaged in that work themselves, but they have multiple different um, responsibilities. So sometimes um, that's not like the largest responsibility when it comes to like dealing with their portfolio companies and things. And so, yeah, you're right. It, there definitely can be an element of that to it. Because I, I just see it as part of this ecosystem, you know, the need for, you know, organizations like yours and and the uh, independent sponsors is to, you know, pr- capital needs to find a place to go. And if you can point the direction, I, I think that really accelerates the process. One of the other real yeah. big accelerators that's assisted in, you know, successful M&A is that a lot of risk has been transferred away from these transactions. And we're talking about breaches of the seller reps uh, and warranties that, you know, they may be disclosing something to a buyer. The buyer doesn't have, you know, the time or the resources for full diligence. And so they got to kind of take a chance that, you know, their diligence was thorough only to find out post-closing something that ends up costing the buyer substantial. And, you know, where uh, I'm very proud the insurance industry has come in with this gaping need and introduced an insurance product called reps and warranties insurance, where essentially they look at the reps, they look at the buyer's diligence and they say, if you've done the diligence and this is what they're saying, if it's not true uh, or inaccurate and it costs you buyer, 
Don't worry, step aside. Don't chase the, the seller. We will step right. in. Um, and that's just been a great, great help in accelerating a lot of these deals. But, you know, don't take my word for it. Bakari, good, bad, or indifferent. What's been your experience with rep and warranty insurance? Yeah, so I, I don't think these days, even in our – so rep and warranty insurance has been a tool that's really been, up until very recently – only really available for large transactions. And so more recently, the insurance product has been made available for lower, for smaller for smaller deals, the deals that I do. Um, and at this point, I don't think it's it, I don't think it's probable for me to do a transaction where we don't have um, some por- portion of that. Particularly, particularly considering um, I like to partner with large firms and they're very accustomed to doing transactions where you have reps and warranty insurance. And so it's unlikely for me to complete those transactions without that. And so it's a tool that's incredibly necessary and valuable for us as we uh, evaluate deals and ultimately look to execute, which is the most important piece of our our business. And you mentioned that this has been a tool of very large private equity firms for very large transactions. And Revenue Warranty was originally set up for deals that would price over $100 million in purchase price. And there are a lot more deals down there. And so over the years, and it's been a very successful product, the tolerance and the guidelines have come down market where you can insure a deal that's maybe $30 million in purchase price and it's still, uh, you know, a value there. The problem is what do you do with deals such as add-ons or bolt-ons that are five, six million dollars or a million dollars? Those folks who actually need protection the most because they can't take a half million dollar hit or a million dollar hit. What happens right. to them? And what's been great is the industry has now evolved and there's a new sell side policy that the seller is the policyholder. The policy can then respond in some mirror image of a buy side policy where in the event of a breach, buyer just notifies the seller that there's been a breach. The seller reports the breach to the insurance company. The insurance company contacts the buyer and they work to settle the deal. So it's one extra step. The great thing is this product is set up ideally for transactions priced between a million and 30 million in purchase price. The rate, because it's a smaller, simpler product and smaller, simpler transactions it's covering, the rate runs between $10,000 and $20,000 per million dollars in limits. So the more limits you buy up to 20 million, the rate goes down. But you can, you know, feasibly see a $5 million deal being insured for uh, $75,000 for the full $5 million. And that's that's a fraction of what buy-side policies come. And we're very proud that that comes in because now we can step in with the sell side of the table and just say, hey, if the buyer is unable or unwilling to find protection, we have it here. So it's a great value add, and we're very pleased with that. Now, as we're coming, you know, we're looking at 2024 is virtually here already. Bakari, what do you see going forward? What trends are out there for you or for M&A in general? Yeah, so my sources and my world has seen this year as being sort of a difficult year for M&A. The transactions have come down um, in terms of volume. I'm still, de- obviously deals are being done, but the volume I think is a little bit lower. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the debt markets. And so I think a lot of us are 
are watching the debt markets very closely. All of us, we invest in using leverage. And so as leverage has gotten more expensive, um, we're taking a, a stronger look at deals um, that may have been easier to pass before. Um, these days, you need to make sure that you're not going to end up in any situation that results in a you know missed covenant, a, um, a credit crunch, uh, a cash uh, issue. Um, and so I think a lot of people are very cautious. Who knows how this is really going to play out? I think as we're coming into an election year, that's going to be it's going to be another factor that people are going to be considering. And uh, I think uh, if 2023 was was uh, was was somewhat quiet relatively on the MA front, I think um, I think 2024 is going to be a wild ride. Okay, well, from from your lips to God's ears, hopefully we can get uh, some more activity going. I think that. There's a, a an issue because a lot of people keep looking at 2021 into 22, whereas post pandemic and that was just an yeah. outlier. Uh, so, but right. if we can return to the pre pandemic times, uh, I think it's going to be nice and robust. So that's fantastic. Well, Bakari Akil from Graves Hall Capital, where can our audience members find you? Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty accessible. I um, let's see. So I have uh, I'm always accessible via email. Um, so reach out to me anytime. My first name at Graves Hall Capital or GravesHallCap.com. So Bakari at Graves Hall Cap. Um, LinkedIn, very you know, accessible. You can search me, find me there. Um, my uh I'm I'm on a world tour right now, actually. I'm traveling to 12 countries for 12 months and documenting my experiences online. And so if you want to learn a little bit about that, um, some of my videos of me traveling at July, I was in Cape Town. Um, uh, next month I was in Athens. Um, last month I was in Valencia. This month I'm in Istanbul, Turkey. So I'm actually, that's where I am right now. Um, and, uh, next month I'm, I'm supposed to be in India. And so, uh, so yeah, you'll can see when I'm traveling and the experiences and, you know, looking at companies out here and the whole night, uh, while I'm, uh, while I'm on this trip. So. Well, and thanks to technology, you can still do deals from anywhere around the world, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Oh, right. And I forgot the, the, the way to find those videos. My my platform is called Nomad Noir. Noir and no Very good. Well, Bakari Akil, thanks for being with us today. No worries. Thank you very much for having me.